Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's a very good morning uh, to a very good week after a very good weekend. I don't apologise for using very good three times there. I did it deliberately. The sun is shining, there's a misty haze over the London skyline and we're ready once more to take the fight to the enemy following a weekend of some reflection after the funeral of Prince Philip and the terribly sad death of Helen McCrory. People were out and about in their thousands celebrating their newfound freedoms. Now I know that some of you will go, well it's not really free is it if you have to go and sit in a garden and put a mask on. Well you don't have to put a mask on, you have to choose where you go, you have to be careful where you go and you have to hang out with the right people. There was a definite feeling of renewal uh, in the air as I walked the dog on the beach and saw more and more people walking around actually not wearing masks outside wouldn't you know and guess what none of them are actually dropping dead in the open air they seem to be all quite healthy this morning we're finding out why all the doom and gloom from the likes of Messrs witty and valens is just that absolute and utter pessimism this morning we're talking to a scientist with a different view here's philip thomas a professor at the university of bristol who has done some research of his own he's worked out that we can definitely return to the old normal that means no masks no social distancing, and we can do it quite soon. He says there will be no significant third wave of coronavirus, and he's going to tell us exactly why that is. 0344-499-1000. Coming up later on, Mail on Sunday, columnist Peter Hitchens joins us with his take on why we should not be poking Russia. It's not so much a bear now as a rather less dangerous beast. And we'll also be asking why everyone is getting worked up about the idea that England's premier football teams are governed by money and their own greed, with news of a breakaway Super League. Talk sports Mark Sagger's joins us and he won't be very happy about it I can tell you. Plus, Angela Levin is with us uh, with her view on the weekend at Windsor where it looks as though Prince Charles might just have solved the war of words between the royal family and the Herbert formerly known as Prince and we'll ask the question what next? 0344 499 1000 as ever of course we need to hear from you what did you do at the weekend? What did you see? Who did you see? And what did you hear? You are the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham uh, and we need to know from you what's going on so we can tell everybody else. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Is it any wonder it's Talk Radio? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, talk to Philip Thomas, Professor of Risk Management at the University of Bristol. Wrote a splendid piece in The Spectator over the weekend, uh, which I've retweeted if anybody would like to look at it. Philip, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. 
Hello, hello, Mike. Thanks Thank very you. much indeed for joining us. It's always nice to hear from a new voice, and we haven't spoken to you, I don't think, before. Um, uh, and I was fascinated to read your piece in The Spectator, not least because it's kind of uh, renewed my faith in modelling, apart from anything else, because modelling has been taking a bit of a, uh, a, a tanking and a going over ever since we saw the modelling coming out of SAGE. Tell us about your studies. Tell us what your um, piece talks about. Well, I think the, uh, the, the point is that uh, people uh, don't realize how successful vaccination uh, is being already. Uh, and what, uh, what, what I was looking at was looking at uh, the steps out of lockdown, looking at the government's roadmap for coming out of lockdown. And what, what I found was that there will not be uh, a further wave of deaths of any significant extent uh, after the 21st of June, which is when, which is the last step on the road, and, and should signal that we are coming out of lockdown uh, for good. Yes, and that is as, as as a result of a mixture of data that you've looked at, which includes the number of vaccinations which will have been carried out by then, and also presumably the figure uh, of general immunity, because many people have also had the disease. Yes, that's that, that's right. Uh, I at, at the moment the model calculates uh, that uh, 60, 62% of us uh, are actually immune and won't pass, won't uh, go down with any infection and won't pass the, the virus on, um, and that that tallies quite well with the latest figures, which is perhaps surprising figures from the Office of uh, National Statistics uh, that. 65% of all the adults, two out of three of all adults in England, have now received at least their first vaccination. Uh, and, uh, and, and the, uh, the ONS is, uh, is projecting uh, that uh, 94 to 95% of us will be vaccinated uh, and will be happy to be vaccinated. Yes. And we're already seeing in the over 50s, it's, it's already the figure is up at 98%. It is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Now, you've got something called the Predictor Corrector Coronavirus Filter, the PCCF, updated daily on the Spectator's data hub. Now, according to your piece in the Spectator, your, your predictions have been pretty accurate. Yes, uh, this has been tracking uh, the coronavirus epidemic uh, since last July. And it's, uh, it checks up against what it does. It takes in the figures for the cases uh, by uh, date reported, which is the headline figure uh, that the government puts out on its website every day. And every day uh, that's, that's processed uh, and it comes out with a prediction uh, of what the, uh, what the total number of active cases, active infections uh, with symptoms or without symptoms in England will be, mm -hmm. is... Uh, at, at the moment, and then that's checked retrospectively against the ONS survey, which comes out with another figure, and it, uh, it's, it's, it's chimed very well indeed. Uh, so it, it looks as though it's, it's, it's a good model. Yes, I think so. And also, looking at all of the stuff that we now know, uh, which we perhaps did not know towards the end of last year, before the bad January sort of kicked in, you know, we are in such a good place compared to where we've previously been. Um, uh, Philip, in terms of the numbers of people who have either had the disease or have been vaccinated, the numbers of uh, transmissions, which are looking at your graphs, have practically gone down uh, to nothing in some parts uh, of the country. Are you surprised that the government isn't moving quicker on this? Well, it could it could move quicker. Um, and uh, there's other work that, that has been done that says it could be speeded up by a few weeks. 
but but certainly as far as the uh, the current situation is concerned and the and the current roadmap uh, is is concerned then there should be there should be no resurgence of deaths what what basically has happened is the link between the link between disease getting covid uh, and death and dying from it has uh, effectively been broken it's it's pretty much broken now mm. it's uh, it it will be uh, almost entirely broken uh, by by the end of by the end of june mm. so what we're what we're likely to see is we're likely to see an upturn in in cases so we will see cases start to rise to something like they were about a month ago but uh, the deaths should stay uh, in deaths per day should stay in in the ten, level of the tens uh, and mm. we're looking at only um, a few thousand more deaths right to the end of the till the whole thing is over. Yes, indeed. Because this morning we're already hearing that you know the government's you know, current sort of modelling, which says that you have to wait five weeks before you do the next level and all of that. There is no significant uh, evidence. It would apparently appear uh, that reopening the schools uh, was in any way uh, tantamount to, to to getting a spike in infections. That didn't happen. Um, many of the other predictions from those sage modellers who are more pessimistic than you haven't happened. Um, you know, they will no doubt say, oh, well, of course, the, the school's infections didn't go up because we made everybody wear masks all the time. But there's no real evidence that that's true either. Uh, pro- probably not. What, but what I can say is that we could actually see the model did actually track what happened. And there are two, there are two things that are, that are, that are, that are important here. Mm. Uh, one is the R rate, which the government talks about a lot. And that, as you say, we we track that every day. Yeah. So we produce a continuous trace for the R rate, and that lipped up to just touching one. It actually was above one, marginally, fractionally above one, uh, minuscule amount above one for a day, and then it fell back again. And the uh, but we also saw behavior because we can track behavior uh, using something called the social distancing index. And the behavioral tracker showed that uh, this did indeed go up. Uh, it went up when uh, it took, uh, it started going up slightly before schools went back, which suggested that uh, we were detecting it about three or three days before that, which suggests that people were starting to mix more mm. in advance of schools going back. They thought right. we, you know, we were going to be back then, so we started to, to do more mixing. Uh, it then it then rose and it rose for the next three weeks uh, and it and it peaked and we can actually quantify that peak and then it started falling down again and then it, it's fallen a lot uh, when uh, when schools actually went on 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 the end of term yeah uh, we would expect to see that starting to rise up again but we don't think that the R rate is going to go above one uh, it might get close to one uh, but we don't think it's going to go above one until until we actually see the uh until we until the last step but by then so many people will have been vaccinated uh that the the link will be essentially essentially broken i think this is the thing that many people including many parents who don't really want their kids to wear masks but just are going along with it because they don't want to rock the boat are complaining about because it's very different uh now the landscape to what it was in september for example when the rate did go up significantly when when schools universities went back because we didn't have a vaccine in september but now that we have a vaccine surely the risk is a lot a lot lower it is. Uh, it's uh, the risks are uh, the risks to children have always been very low. Um, they have they have been down at the sort of one in ten thousand, mm. uh, one one in hundred thousand. Yeah. Uh, if they actually caught uh, the disease, which is you know, that's, uh, that's if they actually caught it. 
so that's uh, that, that's as far as far as children uh, are, are concerned. Yes. Yeah, and in terms of the way that uh, um, the, 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 the economy has been sort of opening up over this past weekend, I mean, I don't know what it's been like down where you are in, in South Wales, but certainly here um, in uh, the southeast of England, there's a lot of people out and about, a lot more people going back to work. Today, most of the schools are going back as well. Um, so you'll be tracking, I dare say, this with some interest this particular week because we're suddenly, yes. you know, we're, we're in a new place. Yes, uh, we can. We, what we see, Mike, is uh, it takes us four days to be able to see what what's going on. So we we're able to say what happened four days ago. Okay, um, that might not sound to your to your uh, listeners uh, so, so marvelous, but it, it's it's about it's uh, better than the government has, which is one <laughs> one reading uh, every uh, which is which is already ten days out of date when when it appears. Right. So, well, well, I mean, what you'll have from four days ago then is a pretty good indication of the first week of opening up hospitality, right? We will, we will have that by the end of this week. We will start to see that, uh, and we will, uh, we will start. What I, what I would expect is that we will see uh, the social distancing index start to rise. Uh, but as I say, at the moment, the the R rate, uh, and, and incidentally, uh, we're currently putting the R rate at 0.6 uh, and we would expect that to to rise but uh, but not above one right and as far as those who say they yeah, beware of the you know the ides of the summer and third wave and 30,000 deaths and all of that i.e Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance you know where are they getting that from because obviously what we hear all the time now is the government moving the goalposts you know first the vaccine was going to be the game changer uh, then it was locked down in January uh, we kept lockdown on until just last week uh, we then are now told that there's new variants coming in and that could be a problem you know they do seem to be constantly looking for reasons not to do the the old normal, if you like. I think that the assumptions that they put into their models are are, are, are pessimistic, uh, and I think they feel that it's a good idea to err on the side of pessimism. Uh, the problem with that uh, is that it's not a cost-free situation, mm. and and the work that, that I did originally uh, pointed out uh, on the risk management side pointed out. That the risks from locking down uh, could far outweigh uh, the risks uh, of of COVID disease, uh, and and I think that's something which uh, I am able to quantify through my own uh, own research uh, using something called the J value, the judgment value, mm. that, that actually enables you to weigh up um, weigh up human life uh, in in life years uh, and compare that against cost and. But one of the things that comes out from that is how very, very important it is to maintain GDP or GDP per head, to be mm. more exact. Uh, if we start, if that starts dropping away, and of course it has fallen, I mean, it, we're still 8% below where we were a year ago, then, then that has consequences. And I think what people don't realize is, and probably uh, the, the sage modelers are, are, are not experts in this field, uh, they they are not aware of how, how dramatic and uh, how dramatically bad the effects on health are of a falling GDP. Mm. Well, they don't seem to have taken it into account, which is what staggers me. You know, when you hear people say, oh, we must lock down, we must stay home, we must save lives, we must stay safe. 
They don't seem to understand that, you know, that doesn't keep people safe. It doesn't, uh, you know, having a, a weakened economy does not keep people safe, does not keep people employed, does not keep people from having mental breakdowns. You know, there's all sorts of collateral damage, which I've been talking about for a year, Philip. Um, did you find yep. any, any sort of uh, sympathetic ears in government to, to what you were saying? Uh, I, have, I haven't been contacted by government. Uh, what 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 I, I I put the research out there and it's it's for them to take notice of uh, and uh, I'm I'm not a campaigner for it I am I'm, I'm acting as honest honest scientist and putting the information out there yes what, I mean what I mean we've got, we've we've seen this before uh, with the, uh, the the financial crash where between 2007 and 2009 uh, the uh, the economy uh, crashed by six percent. Uh, and that led to a stalling uh, in life expectancy growth, which had been going uh, for decades, had been increasing at, at something like uh, uh, two or three months per year. Mm. That, that came to a halt. Now, what we're seeing now is a bigger uh, recession. Uh, we're still 8% below uh, where we were uh, a year ago. There is some feeling that it might not last as long. We can think, keep our fingers crossed on that, and that may well be the case. But it's still, it's still going to be a, it's still, according to the IMF latest forecast, it's still, still going to take two and a half years, uh, and we'll be down for two and a half years before we recover. Now, that means uh, that, from my research, that means that we are highly likely uh, to lose life expectancy, either in life expectancy gains that have been foregone, or uh, in uh, in actually people living living on average shorter lives, and that doesn't mean just people at the end of their lives living a few months less, four months less. It actually means that people are dying earlier uh, throughout the age range, and the amount of loss of life that comes from that is is enormous, uh, and and outweighs probably by a factor of ten. Uh, the sort of losses that could be expected from from COVID. Yes, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Because the government constantly tell us they're following the science, but they only really follow the science that they want to follow, rather than all the science. And your science apparently is not in favour with them. But you're a risk management specialist, Philip. I mean, how would you uh, describe the way this government has managed the risk of coronavirus? I, th I think it's very easy to get uh, to to to, uh, to to go to a, a small group of of people uh, who are scientists and, and ask their scientific scientific advice. I think what the what what the government needs to do is is actually take a broader view, uh, and it's not just the um, in a sense the the obvious bits. I mean, it's pretty obvious that if we if we lock down. Um, uh, substantially and, and for, for a long time, during all the time that we're locked down, we'll keep the disease under, under control. Uh, but it's the, it is, as you say, the, the collateral damage, and it, it is up, up to government to, to take a, a broader view on that. Yes, I think so. I think they'd like to. I mean, I get the sense that Boris Johnson would like to, but as I say, they keep finding new reasons to say why something cannot be done. I mean, it makes no sense at all to me uh, to see so many people outside walking around wearing masks. It makes no sense to me uh, to have children wearing masks for seven hours of the day while they're at school. You know, none of those things appear to have any effect whatsoever. I can't comment on on the effect because I'm, I'm speaking as a as a scientist. You'll understand my sure. 
uh, and, and I'm speaking in the areas that I have studied and I have expertise, uh, and and I haven't looked at uh, I haven't looked at, at mask wearing and, and the effects of it. Okay, what about the the the, the next stage then? Because um, you're saying by June 21st the numbers will have covered uh, so many people that we have nothing really to worry about. Is that more about the vaccination and the rollout of that vaccination, uh, or is it about everything? Uh, it's about everything. It's a good point you make uh, because uh, one of the uh, one of the things that we need should not overlook is the benefit we've had um, from previous infections. So at the moment, about twenty five percent of uh, of the country has had uh, COVID and has recovered, and those people uh, are. I'm not going to, uh, they, they are not going to go down, certainly not with any serious disease, and, and most likely they're not going to, go, going to go down with any any further disease at all. Uh, and so that's that's part of the mix. So at the end of the day, uh, the figures that, uh, that, that come out of this is that we get uh, immunity, which is going to be over 80% uh, by the end of this year, uh, which is higher than the uh, which is higher than the threshold needed for herd immunity, so new infections won't be able to get hold. Uh, and uh, of that uh, 80%, uh, then about uh, 37% uh, comes from vaccination. And that, that is the biggest component, but around about 31% uh, will come uh, from, uh, from infection recovery. And then the balance will come uh, from uh, from prior T cell immunity, mm. and as far as the um, sort of longer term goes, the other thing that we get told about quite frequently now is long COVID. My understanding of the numbers of people suffering badly from that is that it's quite small. They use a number of about a million, I think, of people that have it, but that counts everybody from those who have just got a little bit of a, a lack of taste and not returning completely, that kind of thing. Well, we, we know from the past there are uh, viral syndromes which, which have occurred in the past, uh, which I know something about myself. Uh, but I, I yeah, I, again, I mean, I, I, I can't comment on how I think that's an area for research and people are, are will will find out about it, mm. about that. Uh, but uh, well, I yeah, guess what I'm asking uh, you, Philip, is would you put yeah. that into your model um, or would it not be significant enough, I suppose? Uh, well, what, what my model is looking at is, is uh, I, I look at cases and then I look at deaths and uh, the uh, damage which is, which, is, which is there and which I can sympathise with from, from long, long COVID uh, would, uh, is not covered by my modelling. Okay. Philip, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for your help. Philip Thomas, Professor of Risk Management at the University of Bristol there with a very different view on modelling uh, to what it is that's coming out of SAGE. Some people say to me, yeah, but you don't like modelling. Yeah, I like modelling that's right, that's accurate. What I don't like is modelling that isn't right and which predicts things that don't happen. The point about Philip's modelling is that every single model that he has put out in the past year uh, has been proven correct by the ONS data. So that is why we speak to people like that. That is why we give these people a voice, because the government's not interested, I'm afraid. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. My former colleague at Talk Sport, Mark Saggers, has always been a man of the moment. Uh, wouldn't you know it, just before I asked him to come on the show, Jose Mourinho's been fired from Tottenham. Mark, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the Independent Thank Republic. You. 
Yeah, good morning. It's great to be on the Independent Republic. This is a debut for me. Yes, I can't believe it's been this long before we got you on, Mark. But listen, tell me, first of all, what's your reaction to Jose getting fired? It's another big payday for him, I dare say. Well, Dinamo Zagreb, wasn't it? And uh, having got knocked out of the Europa League and uh, and what have you for Spurs is half the problem for him there. Yeah. He's been miserable. I mean, he was miserable when he came back at Chelsea. He was miserable when he was at Manchester United. <laughs> he was. He's miserable again now. He's, he's, he's sucked all the life out of Spurs. I really like Jose. Yeah. But he can't get over that the game has moved on so far. Mm. Well, it has, but is he also partly responsible, Mark, for where we find ourselves this morning, talking about this Super League, which you quite rightly pointed out on your Twitter account. You talked about this six years ago. I did, actually. Uh, Stan Collier and I on a Monday Feist night in the old days on uh, Talk Sport. The the reason that this was always going to happen, because it's the numbers game. The Americans, if you remember, Mike, if I could just very briefly... No, I do. When uh, Leeds United under Peter Ridsdale had this dream of going all the way and they got back into the then Premier League, they just didn't have the dough. Mm. So what they had to do was they had to somehow refinance and they they got all these Americans to buy bonds over a 20-year period into United. And the great quote at that time from the Yanks was, you know what? We didn't realise there was relegation. What is it? <laughs> yeah, because they've never heard of it over there, have they? Never heard of it. And this this is now, this time around, the Americanization of our English Premier Football League. Yeah. It, 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 it's no doubt about it. But also, I mean, when we see Amazon buying rights to Premier League football and streaming it live uh, on your, you know, your phone or on your iPad or on your smart TV, you know, the world has moved on. I mean, I was saying to Julie Harley Brew this morning, you're looking at uh, the Premier League now and UEFA uh, and FIFA as kind of, you know, analog organisations. They don't get it, yeah. do they? No, you're absolutely spot on again, Mike. The problem with all of this, uh, for even companies like Sky and and others, the BBC and what have you. They've already been sort of shifted out of the game by the next generation. Mm. I mean, the next generation of a lot of these youngsters who now watch uh, Premier League football, mind you, they only watch about five or ten minutes of it. They play all the FIFA pro games, don't they? All of this. They believe that that is what football is like these days. Mm. So when somebody like John Henry gets hold of a club like Liverpool and he knows that in Asia they can probably call on two, three, four hundred million different, uh, well, he'll call them units, but I'd call them families and what have you. If he has the rights for that himself, for his club, and just decides to sell them, you know, 400 million at a two pound a game to stream it there where they make the money as opposed to the broadcaster making the money out of those people. I mean, it's a license to print money. Well, of course it is. And they've been doing this for years. I mean, the idea that the politicians and some, what I can only describe as pompous sports journalists, have decided, you know, oh, my God, we've only just discovered that they've sold out for greed and money. Well, hello. You know, when was the last time you had to buy a new uh, football kit for your son at 95 quid a pop? Because they've changed it again. Yeah, I'm completely with you there. I I thought Boris Johnson's gone sort of slightly the wrong way with... uh, Oliver Dowswell as well, and the rest of them yeah. who, who are involved in this. I mean, this could bring big, big bucks. And I mean, you know, we've come out of Europe, haven't we? Yeah. We're now out of Europe. 
So we can look to the States, we can look to the Middle East, we can look to Russia, right. we can look around the world. And we have got the perfect marketing tool here to make money. These players will still be based here at the moment, whatever mm. anybody says, if this does go ahead. That brings big finances as long as they're not putting it all the way uh, in various offshore accounts. But it means big money for this, uh, the, the, the whole country as well, you know. But the one problem is, as always, the agony is with the fan fans. It's the hope that kills yeah. you. I'm not interested in the old fans like myself who can remember going to watch my club from the early 60s. They are interested. They call them legacy fans, would you believe? Is that right? I'm a legacy fan. You're a legacy fan. <laughs> the new fan right. just wants this streaming whenever they can get it, whatever they can have with it. The clubs love it too. They've sorted it out between themselves. The Russians are on board. Middle East is on board. Uh, other parts of Europe that can't say anything like Germany will be on board. I agree with that, yeah. They're struggling at the moment because they uh, can, through their companies and their big industrialised uh, ways that these have been sort of part of the big firms in Germany, you can only own 49% of that particular club. So right. they need to swiftly sort that out before they can... Yeah, well, this is it. Do you know, I mean... I used to, yeah, I mean, I used to say years ago, Mark, that you know they didn't care about the actual gate money, and that's so it's been proven because, as we've seen for the past year, football has still been as big as ever without any audience. Exactly that in this country. I mean, it's such a shame because you know I was at Wembley yesterday. The first four thousand fans came in, um, national health workers enjoying their. Um, moment and they yeah. deserved it as well and a few fans from leicester city and from southampton but not many of those fans going to the games in this country has changed anyway take arsenal mm. arsenal and take spurs so they're now they're on the tourist trip yeah you know when you, you might cruise into southampton you bus up to london you go and see you know buckingham palace you go down the strand and whatever you do a bit of shopping in Knightsbridge, and then you're off to either Spurs or Arsenal for yeah. the afternoon and a cup of tea. And they probably only watch about 40 minutes. That, I'm afraid, is a cynical but a real-life look at where top-end football has gone. If you want real football, you've got to look in towards the community where you live. You won't get reality anymore with these big clubs. No. Do you know, if I want to take one of my kids now to a football match, I don't take him anywhere near you Chelsea. Take a mortgage out first, I, well, well, first of all, I don't even bother with that. I take him to the local uh, football team in uh, Hastings, yeah. Hastings <laughs> FC. Um, where, you know, you can actually get a pie and a, and a cup of coffee or bovril or something like that, you know, for less than 55,000 quid, you know, and it's and it's a far better experience if that if that's you what you want to do. You feel there, Mike, that, yeah, you're, you feel part of it. You can identify still with the young men playing the game at that yeah, level. Yeah, they're from the town. Yeah, I'm with you. you. You could nearly bump into them the next day as you're staggering out the boozer. Exactly, exactly, as if I would ever do that. But tell me this, Mark, can the Premier League exist without these top six clubs? Uh, this is the uh, other side of the cake, isn't it? Yeah. The other side of the story, really. I'm not sure. They've had it coming to them. They've known for a long time. They've, they, they've let them all in. They've let them do exactly what they want. Remember, the Premier League now... I, th I believe this is right, um, not confirmed, but they've already taken uh, legal advice. And I don't even know if they haven't even started legal proceedings just to uh, let um, the uh, Europeans and FIFA and UEFA and the Premier League know that they can't stop them still playing in the Premier League as well as playing in this 
midweek competition. Um, there will be, there has to be changes. Today, there's a massive meeting of UEFA. And there are some that say this is leverage about all of that. I think it is more than that. It's certainly more than that as far as the American yeah. owners are concerned, John Henry and, and the Glazers and, and beyond. Yes. But certainly today, they don't want to see just um, a downgraded uh, Champions League with clubs from all over, some of whom just they feel don't uh, aren't the ones that everybody wants to watch. They don't deserve their percentage of the rights of television money and everything. And that's why they want to carry on in the way that they're going to. They will break. I think they will break eventually, whether it's now or not. Who knows? UEFA themselves are going to unveil their plan for a Champions League that nobody's now going to be taking part in. Yes. I know. Incredible, isn't it? And what about Newcastle, for example? Because the fans are all over the place now saying, oh, you know, football money's ruined football and all that. But Newcastle fans were desperate for Saudi Arabia to come in and buy their club. You know, well, so there's the quite a bit of hypocrisy of, out there. Yeah. Operation Zebra. Yes. The story that I broke, actually. Mm. Uh, my, my best buddy uh, rang me while he rang me before anybody else. Just when you have a bit of luck, doesn't he? Best old school <laughs> buddy. And he said, Mark, he said... Um, you're not going to believe this, but I've just been asked to buy to go to our uh, Middle Eastern office and um, buy a shell company uh, for a Premier League outfit. Right. Um, they want to take over the whole thing. But of course, if you remember, that was frozen out by the Premier League. Yes. And by everybody else. They didn't want Newcastle United joining their big six. But here's one for you. If those big six now turned around to the rest of the Premier League owners and said, you know what, boys, we've got space for another two of you, but you're going to have to draw lots to see who gets in. They'd all be in. <laughs> I know. It's a wonderful game, isn't it? I mean, the beautiful game has not been beautiful for quite some time. Uh, well, it's at been that a level. It's back to lifestyle. If you, you know, don't think about your youngster being able to make it. Only 0.1% makes it at that highest level. Let them play the sport. Let them have the lifestyle. Let them play for Hastings so that Mike Graham can say, you should be better than this. Mark Saggers, an absolute delight to see you. I'm glad you managed to refrain from chucking a cup at the wall this time, but tremendous. Uh, Mark Saggers, a man who broke the story about Newcastle, a man who knows about football. Six years ago, he warned that this would happen. So don't give me all your mealy mouth like, oh, no, you know, football's been ruined by these money men from America, from the Middle East, you know, from the Far East. It's all gone horribly wrong. It went horribly wrong a long time ago. Let me tell you that. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Morning. Thank you. Flourishing, thank you. Excellent. Well, flourishing is good. I'm glad to hear that. A fascinating piece at the weekend, I thought, about Russia. I hadn't thought about the geographical sort of proximity of the Russian sort of border back in the day when you were working there. Only 500 miles from the English Channel. It sort of sent a bit of a chill down my back, to be honest. Well, I, not, not, not the, technically the Russian border, but the, the, the western, the, the absolute far western frontier of the Soviet Empire. Yes. Uh, the Warsaw Pact was in the middle of Germany at, between Marienborn and Helmstedt, mm. uh, which was, as I say, 50, 500 miles from the Channel. And uh, now you have to travel three times as far to get to the Russian border somewhere somewhere near Smolensk. Uh, and you have to go through, through the whole of the old Warsaw Pact countries and then through Belarus as well before you get to Russia, which is, which is a hugely diminished country, which has given up hundreds of thousands of square miles in, in Central Europe and even more in Central Asia. Uh, and it's also economically and politically uh, and militarily reduced. And yet we treat it as if it was a terrible expansionist threat. Mm. What, what I tried to do, and of course, I was immediately uh, smeared as being some kind of apologist for the, the, the Putin despotism, yeah. which I'm not. What I tried to do was to say, what would, what, would, what would the equivalent have been if the United States had lost the Cold War and Moscow had treated the defeated United States as we have treated it what is effectively defeated Russia. And I explained that the, the equivalent would be, for instance, the the detaching from the United States, which is the parallels of the detaching of Ukraine from, from Moscow, the detaching from the United States of the whole area uh, seized by the United States in the 1840s from Mexico, uh, which a lot of people believe was, uh, it was illegitimate. Imagine if that were to be turned into an independent nation, which was then being encouraged to join an anti-American alliance. Mm. They also imagine that, uh, which is another parallel, that uh, Quebec, finally separated from Canada, uh, joined the the Soviet-run Warsaw Pact and allowed Warsaw Pact troops to be stationed right down on the border, border of the United States, mm. a few hundred miles from New York City. Uh, this is actually parallel by what's going on. There are NATO troops in Narva in Estonia, uh, which are less than 100 miles from St. Petersburg, the second city of Russia. And the Russians find all these things quite alarming, and it doesn't matter what the internal politics of Russia are. If, if, even if Russia were being run, as it is not, by nice, furry liberal Democrats, uh, its government would still be deeply concerned by the, the endless, uh, how shall I put it, a, a treatment of it as a defeated nation. Now, Winston Churchill had a good motto, in defeat, defiance, in victory, magnanimity. Hmm. He knew that if you defeated countries and you treated them too harshly, that in the end, you would, because the, the world turns and extraordinary reversals of fortune take place, in the end, you would create dangerous enemies. And I think this is what we're doing with Russia. And mm. I, the, the only thanks I get for pointing this out is, is to be smeared. 
Well, isn't it interesting? Uh, that... I'm apologist for the for, for the Putin uh, tyranny, which is, is just so stupid. Because mm. uh, people need to think. George Kennan, who was the, the head of American foreign policy towards the Soviet Union, uh, opposed this whole policy of NATO expansion. And now I could call George Kennan some kind of subversive <laughs> Soviet agent. Uh, he he was at the heart of the, the whole policy of containment of of the Soviet Union mm. for. For forty years, and I take his view. If you, you you don't want to make enemies where it's not necessary, and this is this is what we do. Yes. And I just thought turning it around and, and doing a mirror image of what it would have looked like from from our point of view is good because the best way of judging your own policies is to imagine how it would feel if they were applied to you. Yes. By your- and I'm very much of the opinion uh, that the expansion of the European Union was largely to blame for what trouble there was in Ukraine uh, several years ago because Putin and I have some sympathy for him here and I may be also accused of being a Putin stooge which I'm not you know yeah, when, wait, when you're, when wait, wait for it to come yeah. it's the only answer you'll generally get you'll never get a reasoned answer you'll just get smears yeah. it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to discuss without being smeared well as, as we found most most subjects are these days unfortunately yeah, I'm afraid so. um, but I mean you know here's a guy who you know I wouldn't say willingly but you know the breakup of the Soviet Union led to all sorts of satellite states getting independent including Chechnya, including Georgia, all of those places, South Ossetia that nobody had ever heard of. Um, suddenly he finds Angela Merkel making inroads into the Ukraine um, government, asking them if they'd like some money to join the European Union. And quite rightly, he thought, well, this is a step too far, isn't it? Well, this is a very, very old story. Uh, it's it been the policy of the German nations in, in Central Europe since the end of the 19th century uh, to try and destabilise Russian rule in Ukraine. And uh, indeed, uh, it was something which Lenin got up to, which is mm. why when he was it, when he was in Austria, Hungary, in the outbreak of the First World War, he was initially arrested as an enemy alien, which he was. He was very quickly sprung from prison uh, by Austrian military intelligence in Vienna uh, for, as a thank you for all the work he'd done on trying to destabilize Ukraine on behalf of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, and there he ended up in Zurich, where he was then hired by the German government. Uh, to knock Russia out of the war by overthrowing the first democratic government Russia ever had. Uh, so the, the history of this is quite interesting and rather sinister, but there has always been, and in both the Peace of Brest-Litovsk in 1917, and then, of course, during the Third Reich, a huge desire in, in, in certain types of German to, uh, to, to have control of, of the Ukraine, and, or Ukraine as it is now. And this is not a, this is not a new thing. And certainly the European Union, in my view, has for many, many years been the continuation of Germany by other means. Mm. And it didn't seem to me to be much doubt that what was going on in in 2014 in in, in Kiev was a contest between those in Ukraine who wanted to remain non-aligned and those who wanted Ukraine to be aligned with NATO and the European Union. Of course, you can imagine that Russia would not be particularly keen on that any more than we would be particularly keen if, if it still existed. Uh, on France and Germany during the Warsaw Pact, uh, it, it just—it it, just—you just have to see these things from where they are. Russia has got no; it hasn't got uh, a, a strip of, of rough salt water between itself and its main enemies. It's been repeatedly invaded. Uh, it's been its second city, uh, then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, was besieged, and, and hundreds of thousands of people died of starvation mm. within living memory. Uh, the you, if you go to the suburbs of Moscow at Kimki on the on the way in from Sheremetyevo Airport, you'll see the, the memorials to the, the furthest point which Hitler's armies reached, the suburbs of Moscow, mm. as, as if they'd got to Uxbridge. Uh, that's as close as they got. This is a country which is nervous about having having uh, hostile alliances moving up to its frontier. 
if people would only understand that this is not this is a natural reaction in a, in a people that have suffered a lot from war, rather than trying to mix it up with their perfectly justified dislike of, of, of the of, of the Putin despotism and its disgusting uh, its disgusting corruption and uh, and, uh, and, and, and tyranny and refusal to um, to allow a large-scale dissent or proper opposition, if people would separate these two things, then they might recognize that actually, by pursuing this policy, we help the development of fanatical Russian nationalism. Uh, we, we, we get in the way of people, of people trying to, to develop a free, law-governed country in Russia, which, which obviously we must all desire. We're not helping uh, the cause of Russian freedom and democracy. Uh, by by this by this aggressive policy towards a, a country which actually mm. offers no really uh, really particular threat, particularly to Britain. No, indeed. And Joe Biden um, coming out with statements such as "I believe uh, Vladimir Putin to be a killer, uh, and he will soon find out what we're going to do about it." Um, I mean, I don't even think that plays to his domestic audience anymore, does it? I don't think well, the I... Americans want any kind of conflict at this moment. I don't mind him. It's, it, it's not. It's, it's doesn't give me any difficulties people saying that, that, that Putin's regime is, is, is disgusting and there is even if you um, even if, if you set aside everything else there are, there are clear instances uh, particularly the Magnitsky case uh, in which the Russian state is directly implicated in the most disgraceful things I, I don't mind if, if Mr. Biden wants to be rude to Mr. Putin people often are but it, it's it's his, if, if he then turns this uh, into an aggressive, probing, poking foreign policy to a country which is is, is sick with wounded pride and fears very much uh, that its uh, that its integrity is threatened. Then all he will do, if, you, if people think Putin is bad, they should wait to see what they get if mm. he's overthrown by the the militant Russian nationalists who regard him as a, as, as they do as a softy. It's just not sensible to pursue this policy from anybody's point of view. The Democrats in Russia. And those who favour the rule of law are not helped uh, by by being identified with uh, with Western powers, uh, which which many many people in Russia see as a threat. It doesn't. It's, we're not helping the cause we claim to be pursuing. No, and you will be- know better than most people, having lived there, what the Russian psyche is, and it's a very different psyche, isn't it, from the general kind of Western European psyche. Well, it has to be for the reason I mentioned. This is a country which has been repeatedly invaded by Sweden, by Poland, by 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 Britain and France, mm. by France again, by the Germans, by the Germans again, by the by by, by the Golden Horde. The, one right. of the nicest streets in Moscow is called Bolshoi Odinka, which means it's the Street of the Golden Horde. It's called that uh, because uh, th- that's where the Golden Horde used to turn up every few years to collect their tribute. Uh, the the Russian word for safety, Bezopaznost. Is a negative word. It means it means without danger. Mm. The, the default position of Russia is one of danger, and safety is only, is, is only obtained when when danger has been pushed away. That's an absolutely uh, an absolutely crucial difference between Russians and us. They 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 know that they are vulnerable, and many of them have grandparents who experienced it, or don't have grandparents who were killed in it, and it it, it does make a difference mm. the way people regard foreign troops on there but we haven't got borders on which foreign troops can gather no well, i haven't got any so how can we nor is the united states we can say the united states has got mexico to the south and canada to the north it's got no worries uh, the 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 neighbors that, that that russia faces are slightly more worrying mm. no i think that's right speaking of um of what some people would regard as foreign troops on on on, on british soil um what did you make of mary lou mcdonald's apology i mean i don't even want to call it an apology she's the leader i don't think it really counts does it i mean it's a, it's a sort of a, it's a sort of attempt to try and sound less frightful than they have before mm. 
But I don't think that uh, the IRA Army Council, which still, as far as I know, pretty much runs Sinn Féin, mm. uh, I don't think they have any serious regrets about those things which they did, because after all, why should they? They, they gained huge advantages for themselves. Mm. They've got power and influence beyond their dreams in both parts of Ireland. Uh, and they also, uh, uh, Sinn Féin, their, their, their front organisation, has the almost unique ability in the British Isles to raise very large sums of money abroad in the United States, mm. which, which is a, a huge danger to the Irish Republic, where I think it will help Sinn Féin supplant uh, the, the democratic and peaceful parties. So, no, I don't, I'm sorry. I, uh, I, 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 everything they ever say about these things is, is, is mealy and yeah. and, cool, and I, I'm, I'm not prepared to say that it's time they should be invited in, into the committee of proper democratic parties. Why should we do that? No, but it is this world now, Peter, that we live in, in which people seem to want everyone to apologise for everything. Um, in terms of, I mean, I see that the Joseph Roundtree Trust last week rounded up their their own sort of uh, circular firing squad and decided to turn it on themselves because they worked out that, that Joseph Roundtree, despite the fact that they're an anti-racism charity, might well have had some links to slavery. And so they started to apologise. And I mean, actually, I've started thinking quite a lot about this. The act of apology has now become the default position. Anything you do, you must apologise for. You might have to apologise for something you haven't done uh, or something that you might do in the future. I find it quite sort of corrosive. Well, it's cultural revolution and regime change, I'm afraid. Mm. Uh, it's every major institution in the country being compelled to undergo an, an inquisition and a a, 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 a reorganisation and a, a, a repurposing uh, as the whole of the British state and the whole of British culture, education, broadcasting, all the rest of it, is turned into something quite different from what it used to be. Uh, there are a few things still remaining in the past, but they're mostly, they're mostly symbolic. Uh, Kierkegaard's great warning was the most effective revolutions were the ones which left the building standing, but changed everything else. We are mm. undergoing such a revolution. And this is, this is really like the hauling down of the flag. Mm. Uh, we still have the union. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. We still have the monarchy. It doesn't mean what it used to mean. We still have parliament, but it isn't what it used to be. We still have uh, supposedly uh, independent courts, but they don't judge on the basis they used to judge on. We have schools which don't teach knowledge, but increasingly dogma. And this is this is all part. Of, we are going through a slow motion revolution as radical as, as any that any country has undergone, and this is part of it. Yes, I think so. And I mean, there can't have been many more depressing sights this weekend or any weekend than the Queen sitting alone uh, in a chapel with a mask on. I, I did think it was extremely, extremely sad mm. to watch. Um, but one feels on these occasions uh, a, a terrible, uh, uh, well, a reasonable reluctance to, uh, to, to say anything out loud much. This, is a, this, in the end, is an individual grieving for the, for the loss of her husband, a lifelong friend and support. Uh, I, although the thing... One might find the thing disturbing and distressing. I, I just, I just find it very difficult to to say any more publicly than that. But precisely because of the private grief that one is sure. going to intervene in if one gets too engaged in it. So, uh, I, I, mean, I think a lot of us felt were, were, were saddened in more ways than one by what what we saw on on Saturday. But in the end, ultimately, I think one has to. One has to offer one's genuine condolences to somebody who's been terribly mm. bruised. Yes, I think so. I mean, we'll be talking about it coming up in the next hour, but there's also now talk of Prince Charles having a sort of summit meeting to discuss the future 
of the monarchy. Do you worry about the constitutional effect of all of this in the end? I think that the current queen uh, maintains, uh, it's it's like one of those burial chambers in the pyramids where as soon as the air comes in, everything crumbles. As long as she's there, because of the personal respect and love that she commands, uh, the monarchy is not really exposed to, to the modern world. Uh, but the moment has to come by the nature of things when she's no longer there. And at that point, I think the whole monarchy will be questioned. I don't think that most people in this country anymore understand what it's for or how it works or value it or, or realize uh, just how fortunate they are to have such a, a clever, and intricate constitutional arrangement. I think there will be a, a, a great enthusiasm, uh, particularly in Australia and then perhaps reflected back into this country. Uh, for the end of the monarchy uh, once uh, we're into a new reign. And I, I, I fear it greatly. I can't see, given the, the, the general state of public uh, opinion and education, I can't see it's going to be very easy to oppose that. And I fear a period of turmoil. Of course, that means more cultural revolution. If this country were to become a republic, uh, then so many things would change. It's, it, almost every every law and every rule and every way we do things is based upon it being monarchy. If it became a republic, so many things would change. But at the end of it, it would it would be as if a hurricane had blown, blown yeah. across the forest. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded, I suppose, today, because we're talking about it as well, this football story. I mean, football was lost to the general fan, I would say, probably 25 to 30 years ago. The idea that now politicians are jumping up and down because they're thinking of taking their money elsewhere uh, is ridiculous. The same goes for, for the monarchy, I think. You know, if it, if it doesn't indeed end in our lifetime uh, or perhaps shortly thereafter, I don't think we'd be surprised. No, enormous forces are loose in the world, and some of them are resistible and some not. The, the difficulty is that most people don't recognise them when they see them. Uh, and indeed, anybody who stands up and points out the dangers of so many of the aspects of the modern world is often bulldozed aside by yeah. people who say, well, no, actually, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad to have my building society demutualized because I get a large cheque. I'm glad to do this for the same reason that people are... are or, or, or why are you worried about the, the intrusiveness of the information which your phone carries about you? Think of the convenience mm. that the phone gives you. People are, are constantly bamboozled into accepting major changes, which they might, if they, if they looked into them, think were good. But on the other hand, if they paused they, they, and, and set, set, separated the benefits of them from the, the dangers of them, they might be more worried. But people are terribly inclined to be complacent and to believe that all will be for the best and the best of all possible worlds. Mm. And it so often is not. But it's very difficult being, being a dissenter in this because not merely does nobody listen to you, uh, but you also become, as I was discussing earlier, the Russia business. Simply for dissenting, mm. you become the target for, for, for being hosed down with great quantities of slime. Mm. Uh, there is an extraordinary intolerance of any kind of dissent. People seem to want to be happy about things which actually ought to be making them unhappy or at the very least apprehensive and cautious. Yes, quite. And also the other thing you notice when looking around the current sort of political and uh, business landscape is there seems to be an awful lot of people making an awful lot of money um, because they're mates with somebody. Well, I think that's always been the case. Uh, I think there was it a seems huge... worse now, though, doesn't it? Well, no, I think it's probably, it's hard to measure. I think there was a huge reform in the Victorian era of this country, in which we became, by comparison with most places in the world, incredibly free of corruption. And when you consider either the United States or continental Europe, 
this country has a very good record of not being particularly corrupt. And it, I think that it's it, undoubtedly the, the, the nature of the way things are done now is, is, is undermining that. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it is it is bad. What I often say about this is that the whole why is it that politicians who were terrible and did awful things and made grave mistakes are only ever brought down by accusations of sleaze? Uh, what the, because all that happens when a politician is brought down by accusations of sleaze is that he or she is removed from public life and ceases to function. But the ideas and the, the sort of and the and also the the origins of these people, the the, the strange nurseries such as the Oxford School of Philosophy, Politics and Economics, where these idiots are produced, uh, continue to churn out the same idiots who then come along and rule us badly again, and then again overthrown mm. by sleaze, but then are replaced by people just like themselves. I would like to see politicians removed because they're bad at their jobs. I think David Cameron should have been, should have been drummed out of, out of public life for the, his disastrous war in Libya, which mm. did so much damage, not just to Libya, uh, but to the whole of the, the, the whole of the European continent and Africa as well, uh, that it's un- incalculable. It was the most stupid, vainglorious mistake, and yet he still gets away with it. Whereas Blair is at least now rightly excoriated for his Iraq performance. Uh, Cameron's blunder in in Libya is almost completely forgotten. That's what he should have been got rid of. Mm. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. We're still seeing the uh, the fallout from all of that as well, of course, here uh, in the form of people coming to this country from those parts of the world. Peter, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist there with his take uh, on a great many things this week. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Speaking of planets, there seems to have been some kind of activity on Mars. They've managed to fly some kind of drone around Mars uh, from a helicopter base uh, in the planet Earth quite remarkable we'll come up with some more on that coming up a little bit later on right now let's talk to angela levin royal biographer about what happened in windsor at the weekend angela very good afternoon to you hello thank you very much indeed for joining us once more this time last week you were in uh, the pub with us so uh, it's nice to see you back in your um, your habitat at home uh, without having to uh, to worry about what's going on but it was a That's very uh, was fun by the way it was fun it was nice to meet you after all this time as well and all the blossom behind us yes Brilliant. wasn't that lovely yes it was a very much of a success we're very glad we did it we may do it again um let's talk about uh, the uh, what i'm calling the spectacle of the funeral on on saturday because i thought it was quite magnificent the way it was handled a lot of people watched it in awe i think because it's the kind of thing that, that here in britain we do rather well i thought it was overwhelmingly extraordinary event yes and i think it was hard not to be deeply moved and equally proud of Britain. Yes. Everybody's trashing us, and yet we are superior in so many ways, dignified, Mm. um, meticulous. I thought it was just extraordinary. Yes. I mean, so many things uh, stood out for me. I mean, the Green Land Rover, for one, was, was just a fantastic touch watching um, the cars going slowly, watching the members of the royal family. I mean, I, I must admit, I, I felt a tinge of, of sadness for them when they had to wear the masks and much of sadness for the Queen sitting on her own. Um, but a lot of people focusing on the end when it would appear that Harry and, and William had a kind of conversation as if it was almost enabled, if you like, by Kate. Yes, it's very interesting because sometimes life changes on the head of a pin, Mm. really. Um, All the royal family were supposed to go back in cars and each one had a separate car waiting. And at the very last moment, Prince Charles shooed all the cars away 
and decided to walk the eight minutes back to Windsor Castle itself. So everyone else had to do the same. And from that, much may come. Even if a little bit comes, it'll be brilliant. Um, Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge, um, directly walked up to Prince Harry and asked him whatever it was, you know, she was chatting, she Mm. looked lively, she didn't look resentful. Mm. My goodness, they've been so rude about her, but she rose above it with enormous dignity. Her body language was friendly, natural, relaxed. And then uh, Prince Prince William, her husband joined them and she quite remarkably stepped down into the curb, leaving the two brothers on the pavement and gradually stepped back and talked to Sophie, Countess of Wessex and Prince... Yes, it was very subtle, but it was noticeable, wasn't it? It was very subtle, and she kept looking just to see that they were okay. But, you know, the hardest thing is to break the ice, isn't it? Mm. Uh, You can get conversations going in different directions, but this broke the ice and enabled them to talk on a very moving and a very sunny day. Um, It was quite extraordinary. And we'll have to see what happens. Um, It was said that uh, Prince Harry was going to go straight back to Los Angeles Mm. and his wife and little Archie immediately after the service. But um, it's believed he's still there and he may stay for the Queen's uh, birthday. Well, he should, really. I mean, it's only Wednesday, isn't it, her birthday? Well, he absolutely should, but there have been so many things that he absolutely should have done, which he hasn't, that you you don't know what his decision-making will be. But I I hope that there can be some sort of rapprochement between him and the family. I mean, some of them wouldn't speak to him. Princess Anne and Sophie um, wouldn't even acknowledge him. And um, I don't say I blame them at all, but if some sort of some, something can come out of it, at least it can be civil. Yes. I don't think it will ever be the same again, because even if Prince William could forgive him, which I think will be very hard because he was also very, very rude mm. about uh, Catherine, um, it's hard to know whether you can trust them if you think that he might tell Meghan, as one might tell your wife, mm. And then she'll immediately go and make a PR uh, effort out of it. Well, I'm a, I have to, I have to say, Angela, I'm assuming when he does go back, and let's hope he does stay for uh, for the Queen's birthday, because I've said before, the longer he stays here, the better it is for the relationships to heal, really. If he rushes back, and, and uh, no matter what happens, when he does get back, I'm sure he will be in a very seriously long debriefing session um, with Madame Markle, who will no doubt want to know every single cough and spit of what happened, what everybody said, you know, whether they looked at him the wrong way or whether somebody was un, un, uh, unnaturally ungracious towards him. Because I noticed that he didn't look that comfortable, you know, throughout until that moment when William spoke to him. Um, he was walking in where Peter Phillips was between him and William, and he was kind of not. He wasn't walking like a member of the royal family. I know this might sound a bit weird, but he was walking sort no, of in no. a rather casual manner rather than he, a very sort of, you know, upright manner. And and when he came out of the chapel, he was holding the order of service in his hand and he started sort of tapping his thigh with it, which showed me yeah. that he was not really taking it seriously almost. Well, uh, tapping that um, 
program on his side is was very uh, common with Harry if he felt very tense. Mm. I noticed that in the year plus that I was following him around when yeah. he felt tense and uncomfortable, he would tap his leg mm. uh, whatever in his hand or just with his hand. Yeah. So that um, was very interesting. But I, I think that he seemed to deliberately try to take it casually as if I'm not part of this lot, but I've got to walk. And he was looking all around him. Everyone else looked straight ahead. It was um, masterful, really, and very moving how they were concentrating on going towards the chapel. But he was sort of, you know, oh, look, that looks nice. Oh, I'm over that over there. And perhaps I've... Um, Oh, yes, I can. And it was just a very extraordinary way of behaving. And I hope that being through that experience of, of, of the funeral, he might actually touch some of his past mm. and not feel so resentful. Well, I must admit, I watched over the weekend as well um, uh, a, a, a programme which had been made some years ago, um, Prince Philip in his own words, where he drove around the grounds, you've probably seen it, of Windsor Great Park and, and the whole kind of edifice. And I never, I'd never seen the Victoria Mausoleum before. I didn't even know that was there. It was really interesting. And I think a lot of people have found over the course of this weekend and maybe last week as well, that Prince Philip was a fascinating character who did an awful lot of good for not only... Um, the country, but also for Windsor itself and for and for the kind of uh, the environment. Yes, I mean, he became more remarkable the more you read about him from his wretched childhood mm. where he really wasn't per parented properly um, and his success in the Navy and his broad range. I mean, he had 11,000 books, I believe, no, 1,000 books on religion and 12,000 books at all, but he didn't like people to know he was such an avid reader and so profound, so he kept it all to himself. I didn't know he painted for a long time, right. but he and Prince Charles had a great common interest in, in painting. Prince Charles more delicate with watercolours and him more for, formal and and making bigger statements. And, and I think that um, he has done so much for the country with the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme. I had no idea it had moved to yeah. 140 countries. Yes. And so many people spoke out about how it saved their lives or changed their lives or gave them confidence or kept them out of prison. Um, it was absolutely astonishing. Mm. And all the beautiful modern artwork he collected for the royal collection. Uh, and generally, he was a modernizer. I didn't realize that yeah. either, that he wanted the the monarchy to move forward. And I think this um, funeral is a way of um, keeping together both the past and holding on to tradition and being able to move and change according to the year. Yes. Uh, I thought it was absolutely something to always remember. Yes, and I think he also comes across as the glue that was holding it all together. You know, yeah. and you wonder without him, and obviously he hasn't been himself uh, in recent months, so perhaps it's already that he was less of an influence. But, I mean, he does seem to have been a very unifying force amongst all of the difficulties uh, of the last few years. Yes, very much so. I mean, when he married uh, Princess Elizabeth, as she then was, she had to put every effort into doing her duty. 
and he was left to decide what happened with the family. And she was quite happy with that. He chose the schools. He made all sorts of decision makings. He brought proper kitchens in. Kitchens in. He he made sure that things were modern and computers. Mm. He brought in. I mean, he was responsible for all those things that might seem small, but the the royal family does not rush ahead. And he made sure that it stayed. Um, modern. But I think it was very significant that Prince Charles made his speech after the death, which was saying uh, how much he loved his father mm. and how important he was, and then taking on the fact that he would now be father to the family. And I think his movement of walking back to Buckingham, walking back to Windsor, was actually very important in that. Yes. And they all followed him. Nobody could get in the car. They followed him. And it seemed that already he was taking on the position of, of following his his father. Yes, I think that's right. And as far as the uh, future goes, I saw over the weekend pieces written about Charles wanting to have a sort of summit meeting, which will be chaired more or less by him, but ably assisted by William. Um, and where that goes is difficult to know, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like they, they're looking at reducing some of the constitutional um, work that the royal family does. It looks as if they're thinning it down a little bit more. What do you think is likely to be the end result of all of that? Well, Prince Charles has wanted for a very long time to cut the monarchy down to save costs and to make people um, be worth the um, money that they got from the taxpayer. Mm. And I imagine that that might be when uh, Harry and Meghan are ditched from being members of the royal family. And I think the outer edge, which the Queen has wanted to keep together for a very long time, um, for sentimental and, and reasons that she, at her age, she didn't really particularly want change, which mm. is understandable. Yeah. But he wants to change, and I think he will do that. He will also accompany the the Queen. Uh, she's uh, said that she's going to be there for opening uh, Parliament in, in May the 11th, and Prince Charles will be accompanying her. And I think, she, although she wants to do her duties, she will step back even more. It'll be quite hard to come back after the, yeah. the pandemic and all the isolation. And Prince, I don't think she will fight Prince Charles anymore. In fact, she'll be grateful for him taking over and making, I imagine, quite big decisions on behalf of the royal family. Yes, I'm sure that's true. And, and she'll always be uh, presumably some kind of advisory um, um individual anyway for, for whatever goes on but I mean it'll be quite a big moment will it not if Prince Charles opens Parliament perhaps in the, in, in the autumn Yeah I think we can't rush forward because we don't know and she's a very determined woman and I think that that's one of the duties that she can manage although it does worry me that the crown is tremendously heavy and she usually gets a headache after it yeah. and I think that something must be sorted about that. I don't think she has to um, be uncomfortable in any way. Maybe they but, could make a replica with some lighter um, materials. A quick a quick replica. <laughs> yes, that would be that would be a very good idea. Something light that yes. looks similar. Yes. Um, but I think the relationship between Prince Charles and his parents has got much better in the last few years. Mm. 
partly thanks to Camilla, who has made him so happy that he's not sort of whinging or yeah. you know, negative. And, and I think that uh, he will be much needed now, as will William. I think William will back him up, so their relationship has got better. Yes. And I'm sure that the monarchy will survive and be strong. And um, William said that he wants to follow uh, his, his grandfather's footsteps and the, the decisions that he made and his dedication to duty. And I found that very comforting for him to say that about his grandfather, that he will make lots of changes, but that he will also uh, follow the, the, the decency that's within the yes. royal family. And it's interesting as well, because I've spoken to quite a lot of people who were watching it and, and, and who thought that it was nice that Harry was there, but it was also nice that he was there on his own in some ways, because Meghan might have changed the whole thing if she had been there. I, I think everybody felt a great um, sigh of relief that she wasn't coming for whatever reason. Mm. Um, and her comments that one of the reasons was not the fact that she was pregnant, but the fact that she didn't want to hog all the attention. <laughs> I mean, arrogance. I mean, can that. you imagine? The arrogance of that yeah. means he has, still has no idea what the royal family is all about. Um, I, I think it also enabled Harry to be a bit more like himself. I think he worries so much about pleasing Meghan that he just wants to say and behave in the way that she would like. And here uh, he could be a little bit of himself if he remembers what that is of course well this is the thing i did wonder i mean because windsor was so important to the family and that was also made clear in this documentary that i watched about uh, prince philip you know to talk in the terms that he and she talked about looking at that beautiful setting of you know frogmore cottage windsor castle you know the great walk um you know the long the long road up to the castle um the the beautiful grounds the deer i mean everything about windsor is 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 just fantastic i mean the idea that you would complain about living there particularly in a house filled with servants and filled with money and filled with pretty much anything you wanted is bizarre isn't it well, the fact is that um, Megan didn't feel comfortable at all from the word go. Mm. She hated it. She felt very depressed, as we later discovered. And um, so she would never be happy anywhere or however many staff she had or anything else. Mm. She wanted to get back to America. But actually, the other thing that would be interesting about Prince Harry is how much did he think about the wedding? Because, of course, the wedding was held in, in the same St. George's Chapel, um, not even three years ago, less than three years ago. Um, and I wonder what he thought, looking back on that, mm. he must have done while he was there in the chapel. Yes, I'm sure. Absolutely right. So what's your sort of, your finally, your, your sense, Angela, of what happens over the course of the next year? I know I asked you this before the funeral um, in terms of the Queen's ability to continue as the queen um and, and i mean everyone says to me oh you know she doesn't do abdication we don't do abdication she won't abdicate but it might not be quite as simple as that but 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 surely as you've said i mean she's not she's not a young woman she can't do an awful lot of the the, heart, the heavy lifting if you like um charles yeah. is going to have to be more involved isn't he yes i think certainly so i think she very much is turning her attention now to the platinum um jubilee which is next year. I mean, that is a huge, important event. And I think she will want to be there. 
I think it would be very hard for her to step down altogether because this is her life. And what will she do without that? So she can keep herself busy mm. and she enjoys it. She can do lots of things via Zoom, but I think Prince Charles will take over, as you say, the heavy lifting. And good. I mean, I, I spent over a year with him to write about him for his 70th birthday. And I was amazed how many people appreciated what he was doing because you, the implication is that nobody does, but that's not true. Mm. And how he will be as an heir um, will seem very, very different to how he is as, a, uh, as very close to the throne and, and running a lot mm. of it. I think he will show great um, experience and understanding and want for the monarchy to continue in the dignified way that it has. Mm. And what about Harry? Um, he goes back to California at some point, whether it's um, tomorrow or, say, next week. When do you think he'll be back? Well, he's supposed to come back in, in the summer to unveil um, the statue of his late mother, mm. Princess Diana. Um, he and William spent um, from 2017 until very recently sorting out what they actually wanted. It was quite difficult for them to agree, but there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and it will be, will he come? Will Meghan come with him? Uh, will she have had her child? We don't know how pregnant she is, of mm. course. And um, will that be another opportunity for conversation? I, I think it will. I think a little ice has been cracked, no more than that. Mm. Um, and that next time, if he does come over, and he really wants to do that, I mean, he's adored his mother, if he really wants to come over, there will be more time, um, a more positive thing to to do, to have more conversations. But I don't think for a minute it will ever get back to what it was. No, I can't see that. But we shall watch, as, as we said before, with great interest. Angela, thank you very much indeed. Angela Levin, Royal Biographer there on uh, Prince Harry, what he does now, because surely... He's only got to wait two days for the Queen's birthday. It'd be pretty churlish, would it not, for him to take off um, and uh, dis dis disappear back to California before the Queen's birthday on Wednesday, right? And also, uh, just as a little aside, apparently more people watched the funeral of Prince Philip than actually watched the Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan. Just thought I'd let you know about that. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.